everybody, and welcome into another episode of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to avalanche podcast with your favorite avalanche reporter, Arif Dean, and your favorite podcaster, J.J. Derez. And of course, we can't forget about our favorite producer, Patrick Stedman, behind the scenes here, making us sound good. But time to get into some more avalanche talk midweek here. You know it's important if we're coming to you midweek, right? Well... I don't know. Is it that important? We don't know. Let's get into Ryan Murray. He wasn't the first option. He wasn't the sec- second option the Az wanted, but he's a guy that the Az got, and ultimately, after looking into him, I think he's a guy all of us are on board with having on this team. Yes, I definitely think so, and yes, we are your favorite Avalanche reporter, your favorite Avalanche podcaster. We're going to hear. We're here to talk about your favorite hockey team being the Avalanche, and everybody's new favorite sign- signing in Ryan Murray. I'm struggling with my words here, JJ. Ryan Murray is... Welcome uh, to the club. Yeah, Ryan Murray, I think, is an excellent pickup, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to kind of go on a little bit of an air of tangent like I always do here, but when the Toronto Maple Leafs... (laughs) Yes, and we're taking this to the Toronto Maple Leafs, but when the Toronto Maple Leafs were protecting... (laughs) When the Maple Leafs were protecting players from the expansion draft, they chose to go four forwards and four D so that they can protect one Justin Hall. Even though that meant Jared McCann and Alex Kerfoot were left unprotected at forward, which are far better and more valuable players than Justin Hall. The reason why they did that is because as a defenseman, a right shooting defenseman specifically, which Murray's obviously a lefty, but as a right shooting defenseman making $2 million, Toronto knew if they kept Justin Hall unprotected, Seattle was going to take him. And then they would not have the money to find a replacement because none of these defensemen are going to go for $2 million. They're all going to sign for three, four, and 5 And we saw that. Jake McCabe got 4.4. Cody Ceci got 3 point whatever. All of these guys got big money. So Toronto said, it's not the fact that we're going to lose Justin Hall. It's the fact that we're going to lose somebody that plays 18, 19 minutes only making $2 million. That's the way that I feel about Ryan Murray. The Avalanche didn't go out and sign Ryan Suter. He was making 3.6 over term. Jake McCabe, hell of a pickup for the Chicago Blackhawks, 4.4. Cody Cece, you know, think what you will about him. He's had one good season, 3.2 million. All these defensemen are making a lot of money. For one year at $2 million, given what he brings to the table, Ryan Murray is an excellent pickup and he's going to fit in really well considering that he's going to be your new shutdown guy. He blocks shots. He plays on the PK he slots in perfectly. Yeah, I like that thought. I mean, getting a depth defenseman at a pretty good price, obviously that's great. But I think here, Joe Sackick's back's against, kind of against the wall here in needing to replace a couple forwards, whether it's Brandon Saad or Jonas Donskoy. Somebody's got to still fit in there. So having to find somebody with value and somebody you can get relatively cheap in comparison, I think was pivotal. So regardless if they got their number one guy or their number two guy or their number three guy, they got a guy that fits with the salary cap and still have room to make another move. We'll look into that a little bit later, but for now, let's stick with Ryan Murray. So that being said, where does he fit in the lineup? We know he's a depth guy. Obviously, there's no replacing the top guys we have in the defensive group, but in that depth, you know, the four, five, six, seven guys, where does he kind of slot in there? He's going to be your number six guy, and uh, that's a pretty good spot to have him considering he can play 17, 18, 19 minutes like he was with the Devils. What I really like about the Avalanche's six-man unit right now, and you know, it's the six main guys when healthy, which we all know is not going to be the, the case the entire season. It just never is. But McCarr, Gerard, Taves, uh, Johnson, Byram, and Murray. None of these guys are passengers. And not that they've had passengers in the past, but you saw it when, when Connor Timmons was playing, it was often 11 or 12 minutes. Jared Bednar trusted five guys, and then there was Timmons playing 11 or 12 minutes. Sometimes Patrick Nemeth was on the low end. Jacob McDonald, when he first came in, he was the passenger, and then he started to gain the trust of the coaching staff and playing more. But with these six guys, who do you see being the passenger? Like, who's going to be the guy where you're going to play a ton of minutes and then somebody's at the bottom. Is it going to be Ryan Murray? Because he's going to play a lot on the PK. He's going to be blocking a lot of shots, playing a lot of defensive zone draws. Is it going to be Bowen Byram? Because I don't think so. Yeah, he's young, but the Avalanche trust him. Is it going to be Eric Johnson, who before his injury the season prior was playing 20 minutes a night? Or is it going to be one of the top three guys? Like you have six solid defensemen that kind of all fit. And with Johnson and Murray in the lineup, now suddenly you have two guys that you can stick on to every single penalty kill and know that you're going to have somebody blocking shots, know that you're going to have like a physical edge. Even though Murray's only 6'1", he plays with a bit of a physical edge. 
you know that you're going to have the right guys slotted in the right spots. And uh, no disrespect to Connor Timmons. Connor Timmons has a higher ceiling. He's got a brighter future. But Ryan Murray just fits a little bit better with those other five guys. Yeah, it feels like Jared, once again, you know, and we've seen this over the last couple of seasons, more Jared Bednar type guys coming into the lineup, right? And where not only does he have some insurance if some injuries inevitably do pop up, but he also has accountability that he can keep with his players, right? If you're not playing your game, we have somebody right behind you who's ready to step in, who has a lot of experience and can come fulfill a role when asked to. And I think that's kind of what you have in Ryan Murray. Not that he's going to come challenge a guy like Devon Taves, challenge a guy like Bowen Byram, but he's back there kind of breathing down their neck saying, hey, you keep up, you, you keep your game sharp or else we got somebody he, here to, to slot it. Well, yeah, well, here's the thing. He's a lefty and so is Sam Gerrard. So if Sam Gerrard's going to have bad games like he did against Vegas, mm-hmm. I mean, he was excellent in the regular season, but if he has bad games like he did against Vegas and Bedner wants to throw out a, a, a purely shut down unit, who's to say that Eric Johnson and Ryan Murray is not your second pair? Mm-hmm. So there is options now there. And then you obviously have the kid in Bowen Byram who you can sit there and do the same exact thing with. Yep. Yep. And I think, uh, you know, in Avalanche Land, a lot of people first saw the the acquisition and they looked at his games played, right? And got a little nervous. Oh, wow. He can't even play a full season and he's often injured. And really, we're finding that's kind of a misconception. It's not so much injuries that kept him out of the lineup last year. Sure, injuries have been somewhat of an issue in his career, but I don't think it's anything to really raise any red flags right now. No. So last year, I mean, there, there's a lot of talks, obviously, of his past, but last year, Ryan Murray played 48 games. Uh, we have to remember, number one, that it was a 56-game season. Number two, Ryan Murray was healthy, scratched a few times by Lindy Ruff when he took over the coaching, uh, when he took over coaching duties, uh, just because they were sort of getting acclimated to the system. But then he found his footing, got his spot on the lineup, played big minutes, you know, big role on the PK. He was one of their top four defensemen in PK minutes. So he was on those top two units. And then the other games that Ryan Murray missed last year were because of COVID. He was on the COVID protocol list when the Devils had that outbreak. If you guys remember, the Devils and the Sabres played each other. One team gave the other team COVID. They both had those very long breaks. Uh, Mm -hmm. They kind of were doing it before it was cool because the Avalanche decided to have it twice. What a year. But um, yeah, so those were the games that Ryan Murray missed last year. He played 48 games and he didn't lose games because of injury. I mean, Darcy Kemper was more injured than than Ryan Murray was last year. So if the thought is that Ryan Murray might not be able to stay healthy, I mean, maybe everybody can get injured. Kel McCarr is yet to have a fully healthy season, but he wasn't injured last season. He 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 played his he played his game. He was a shot blocking machine and played 18 minutes and 36 seconds on average per game over 48 games. I'm going to rewind you a little bit on something you kind of just jumped over there. You mentioned it, but if I'm a listener, I think it's something that kind of uh, raised a little bit of a flag for me. And that's the fact that he was scratched when Lindy Ruff first joined the New Jersey Devils. Obviously, if he's a hands down lineup defenseman, there's no chance he gets scratched. Again, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I like the acquisition, but does that not enter into your mind that maybe you know there is something to keep an eye on here if he's getting scratched in the first little window of Lindy Ruff's tenure Uh, I don't think so Uh, some coaches like certain players and will play certain players over others Uh, let's take into account that the team in Long Island right now on Long Island I should say uh, went out of their way to keep offensive guys like Jordan Eberle and Josh Bailey unprotected so that they can protect Matt Martin and Cal Clutterbuck Teams have their guys. Coaches have their guys. Uh, it's just a matter of the right fit. To me, Ryan Murray's the kind of guy that's going to fit in. Like you said, he's a Jared Bednar guy. I wouldn't really take into consideration him being scratched a few times uh, because the last guy that we got, you know, that was playing this role was Ryan Graves. And not only was he not scratched, he wasn't even in NHL or before he came to Denver. So it's 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 about what we know, what the player can bring rather than what he did do with his past teams. Yeah, I know you got a little bit into it. He plays some PK. He's a shutdown guy. But you also mentioned how he kind of found his role there with Lindy Ruff after those scratches. I guess, can you provide any insight on what was adjusted? What does his role look like now versus what he was before that scratch window? Before that scratch window, Ryan Murray was a number two overall pick in a terrible draft where Neil Yakupov went one and he went two. Um and the idea always was that he was going to be a 
top pair guy, a top four guy even. Uh, he was going to have a big career. He was going to be a number one, number two defenseman. He was going to play big minutes. He's had to adjust from that. And that's often the hardest thing for a player to do is to adjust from that. He's also coming off of a two-year deal where he was making over $4 million per season, I believe. And now he's slotting in on a team where he knows his place. He knows his place. He's not playing on a New Jersey Devils team that has an, you know, a beat down and broken down P.K. Subban, uh, Damon Severson, and whoever else they had playing defense last year, Ty Smith and whoever else. Like there was no clear spot for him. He kind of played big minutes sometimes, uh, less minutes other times. Like you don't really know what your role is. But now when you're joining a team where you know for damn sure Gerard, Taves, and Makar are better than you and are going to play more than you, Eric Johnson, if he can stay healthy, will be relied much more, will be relied on much more than you. And then you have a kid in Bowen Byram whose minutes are just going to skyrocket as the season goes on. You know your place, you know your role. Jared Bednar is going to empower him into that role. He's going to play the same role Ryan Graves did. He's going to be a third pair defenseman. He's going to play a lot on the PK, a lot of defensive zone draws, hopefully less boneheaded turnovers than Ryan Graves had. But you can use him in a pinch in the top four when needed, like Ryan Graves. Right, and Ryan Graves was depended on heavily, right? I mean, it would, even though he was a third-pair defenseman, you saw him. There was always an injury. You saw him, you saw him get a lot of minutes. Yeah, that, that's that's another good point, too. So The, the, the other guys couldn't stay healthy, whether it was Johnson all season, whether it was McCarr, uh Someone was always out, and, and and Graves always had to play top four, even if it wasn't ideal. Right, and there you you said it right there too, right? Uh, Ryan Graves was always good for at least one boneheaded play every once in a while. Whereas you bring in a guy who's a little bit more veteran, a little bit more seasoned, you probably eliminate a lot of those bonehead plays while getting a very similar player than Ryan Graves. Exactly, and unlike Ryan Graves, Ryan Murray is known as a shutdown defenseman. Ryan Graves still has his uh, moments of wanting to be more than just a shutdown guy. And that's kind of what leads to the boneheaded mistakes. He kind of likes to jump into the rush and, you know, do the things like that, where if you're Murray and you're paired with Bowen Byram, you're not the guy making the rush. It's always going to be the kid. It's always going to be Bo. If you're playing with Eric Johnson, maybe, but we all know when Eric Johnson likes to pretend he's Bobby Orr and go rushing up the ice. And then if you're playing with Gerard Taves or Makar, certainly not either. So, I just think, I don't know, like something about the fit of Ryan Murray on this team, just just it it feels right. And uh, I'm going to toot my own horn for a little bit. I literally wrote about it an hour and a half before he <laughs> signed when I was looking at all the free agents left. And there's defensemen out there like Eric Goodbranson and Jason Demers, even in old Zidane Chara, who's still looking for a team right now. There's a lot of guys out there, but Ryan Murray just made sense. He's young. He's got some skill to him. He's got some speed to him. And he fills the exact role the Avalanche need. They don't need Connor Timmons to come out there and be an offensive puck-moving defenseman. They need somebody to come in and be a shutdown guy and really compliment Eric Johnson to be the big minute munchers on the PK and uh, in defensive zone draws. And if you don't believe it, go look at who they got at the trade deadline. They needed a guy like that. They went and got a familiar face in Patrick Nemeth because that's the role that Patrick played when he was here. And boy, did they overpay for him, much to your point. That's where all the uh, defensemen were kind of going. Even a guy like Nemeth got almost four mil a year. I think he got, no, he got two and a half. But the way his contract is struck, first of all, he got three years. I don't know why you're giving Patrick Nemeth three years. Yeah. But it was it was three years at two and a half on average. But I think the way it's structured is four point two and a half is almost four. <laughs> right. It's uh, just just a little bit. If you round up from zero to four, it's closer to four than it is to zero. Yeah. But his salary exactly. structure is three, five, two, five, one, five. Uh, I don't know what the Rangers are doing there, but sure. But Ryan Murray for two million for one year, no commitment makes a lot more sense than what Patrick Nemeth got. Yeah, I'm with it. I really like the Ryan Murray signing. Just Let's just see if he stays healthy. I know that's on a lot of people's mind. Yeah. I don't really think it's going to be an issue just yet, but of course, who knows what, what's to come, right? I mean, we never thought the same about any of the defensemen going into last season. I think they all missed time at one point or another, except for Gerard, right? Didn't Gerard, wasn't he an Ironman this year pretty much? Almost. He, um, he missed a couple of games because of COVID. It was his first time missing games in an avalanche sweater. And then I think he got injured later. I remember there was a hit behind the net. Yeah, he ended up getting injured later, but... Uh, uh, okay, well, there you go. The only guy that played all 56 games in the regular season was Nazem Kadri, and I, I don't remember for sure, but if if my memory serves me right, I think he missed a couple playoff games. I don't know for sure, though. Yeah, cue the uh, Price is Right horn. Do, 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 do. Well, that's it for us, folks. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, let's look at the rest of the D, right? I mean, there's more to the defensive group than just the top six. So I guess who's left? What's the rest of the group look like? And, um, you know, what can we expect if and when one of these players do get injured? Who's stepping in? Simply put, it's Jacob McDonald. Uh, What I really like about the injuries the Avalanche had last year is they suddenly found something that they didn't know they had. And that's Jacob McDonald. If you remember in the bubble, he was uh, he made the team. He was with the team. So was Bowen Byram. They they accompanied the team in the bubble, even though neither of them played. But McDonald has taken massive steps. And it was one of those things where like, so so let me say this. We're going to talk about the forwards in a little bit. But if you if the Avalanche could only sign one player, be it a defenseman like Ryan Murray or like a forward version of that, you know, a, a depth guy to stick into the top six, would you be more comfortable with Jacob McDonald as your sixth defenseman or would you be more comfortable with like JT Comfer or Alex Newhook in your top six forward group? Oof, that's a tough one. I mean, I just think that's kind of one of the bigger glaring issues with the Avalanche is the once you get in the, into the injury pool, right, and you have to start reaching for the depth and the guys that are AHLers slash, you know, taxi squad, whatever you want to call it, that's kind of where you're you're really reaching for guys and really holding the bar high for those kind of guys. I don't know if Jacob McDonald's a guy I love in the lineup, especially if it's over adding an extra winger like JT Comfer. So personally, I would love the experience of of those wingers you named over a guy like Jacob McDonald, but I'm sure you differ in opinion on that. Yeah, so yeah, I, I actually do differ. And kind of my point here is if the Avalanche went into the season without signing Ryan Murray... I would feel comfortable with Jacob McDonald being your sixth defenseman and on the starting lineup opening night, all the while knowing, like you said, as soon as one injury hits and boy, will an injury hit, you've got nothing. You've got no safety net. You might have Justin Barron and then you got a couple of other guys we're going to talk about in a sec. But at forward, I don't know if I would trust... JT Comfer on your second line with Kadri and Burakovsky, nor do I think I would trust Alex Newhook starting there because there is no safety net behind him in case the kid just isn't up to it just yet. So that's kind of my point is Jacob McDonald is a serviceable top six defenseman to use in a pinch and you're going to have him on the outside looking in. So kind of what the Avalanche had with Connor Timmins going into last season. You knew Timmins was ready, but he was on the outside looking in. So you have that in Jacob McDonald, and then you might have Justin Barron who might play some games, but then you have guys. Just like last year, there was many games where the Avalanche had to play Keaton Middleton and Kyle Burrows and all these random dudes you'd never heard of wearing you know jersey numbers like 88 and God knows mm-hmm. what, 67 I think Middleton was. Um well, now your version of that this year are going to be a couple of the new guys they brought in. Uh, Jordan Gross from Arizona. He played eight games last year. He had three assists, all of which came in the same game. So if he could do that eight times, he would have 24 points. It would be pretty cool. <laughs> uh, and then you're going to have uh, Dennis Gilbert, the forgotten mm-hmm. one. Uh, Dennis Gilbert filed for salary arbitration. Uh, the cool thing about Dennis Gilbert, by the way, filing for salary arbitration is that it opens up a second buyout window for the Avalanche. Not that they're going to buy anybody out, but uh, for all the people that were dreaming of Eric Johnson getting bought out, there is a chance it's not going to happen, though. So when a player files for salary arbitration, you have 48 hours after his hearing is awarded or the team and the players settle, you get 48 hours later, you get another buyout. So just a weird little nerdy tidbit. But Dennis Gilbert's kind of the forgotten guy. He's a guy that you can trust. How much is that arbitration going to affect any future moves for Joe Sackick, right? I mean, doesn't he have to technically wait until that's settled to kind of know what the rest of his cap looks like? I mean, technically, yes, but uh, because I believe it has to be over a certain number for you to be able to uh, reject the award. You know, if if Dennis Gilbert is awarded $950,000 or God knows what, you can't reject that. You have to take it, but... Also, don't forget, so he's coming off of his uh, three-year entry-level deal paying him nine twenty-five a year. That was his cap hit. What's he going to make? Like, what is Dennis Gilbert realistically going to make? Maybe a million? And that's... If, if I'm Joe Sackick, aren't you sitting there like, you son of a bitch, like, why are you being so greedy? I need every penny I can get right now. Yeah, so here's the thing. Players have every right to file for arbitration, and I think it's fine when they do it, but... We're talking about a guy that has 25 career games, one goal, two assists, and 45 penalty minutes. So you're saying it might be the difference of $250,000 one way or the other? If even that. 
it might even be the difference of a two-way and a one-way contract. But the most important thing to remember is Dennis Gilbert's not one of your top seven defensemen. He's number eight on the depth chart, in my opinion. And maybe number nine. I don't know much about Jordan Gross, but he's probably number eight behind McDonald and the six guys we just talked about being Dennis Gilbert. So he's not going to start on this on the on the opening night roster. We know Joe Sackick or sorry, Jared Bednar likes to carry 22 players, especially with the Avs uh, affiliate up in Loveland. Now it's easier to kind of bring him back and forth. So it's 13 forwards, seven defensemen, two goalies, 22 players. Gilbert's on the outside looking in. As long as he's making less than 1.025 million, that entire number comes off the cap when you send him down. He might be waiver. He might not be waiver eligible, and he might be you know a player that other teams can select off waivers if that were the case. But again, 25 games, one goal, two assists. Nobody's really gonna sign a guy and you know take a guy and pay him a million dollars for something yeah. that's really just they don't really know what's there. Mm-hmm. So the way that I see it is. It might be over a couple hundred thousand. It might be over uh, a one-way, two-way contract. In the end, he's not going to get enough money where it's going to hurt the Avs because he's going to get sent down to start the season. It's not going to count against the cap. Whoop-de-doo. Uh, so he's also an option. And I would say he's number eight on the depth chart. Gross is number nine. And then there's the other question mark in uh, Roland McCowan, who they signed from, I believe, Switzerland, maybe Sweden. I can probably Google it real quick, but it's not that important. Uh, coming back after playing for the Charlotte Checkers and and a couple of games in the NHL before that, so they have a few guys. And again, these are these are your Keaton Middleton and Kyle Burrows of the roster. Like you're going way down the depth chart at this point, where you're not supposed to have NHL defensemen going down that low. But again, as you pointed out, there's a good chance we see these guys, especially now that we're going back to an 82 game season. I think that's even increasing the odds of injuries here. We've seen all those guys. Yeah, but. In any given game, okay, so let's say in, in a given game, uh, Murray and Johnson are hurt. So you got Byram, Taves, McCarr, Gerard, Dennis Gilbert, and Jacob McDonald. That's fine. You're good. All right, let's say it's McCarr and Gerard. So you got Johnson, Murray, Taves, Byram, Timmons, and McDonald. That's cool. Man, I'd, li- I'd like to see McDermott get some, some good amount of ice time just to establish a little bit of fear. And there's the other guy. That's the one that I haven't talked about yet. Thank you for bringing him up. The cool thing about Curtis McDermott is, like I said, Joe Sackick was very open about we're going to play him at D or forward, just wherever we can slot him to go punch another guy. Um, but yeah, he can play on the on the blue line as well. He's he's naturally a defenseman. That's the thing. So there's another guy. So you have options. You have depth. If you're four injuries deep at that point, like you shouldn't have an NHL roster. Nobody should. Like you're. Your 11th best defenseman shouldn't be an NHL caliber defenseman. And what a bummer it was how we record our last podcast and talk about McDermott and how he's here to prevent any Ryan Reeves shenanigans. And literally an hour later, (laughs) Ryan Reeves gets shipped to New York to prevent any Tom Wilson shenanigans. And now we're here with Curtis McDermott. Like, well, I guess he's still usable, but the whole reason we got him got shipped to the East Coast. Well, I mean, the the only reason why we needed somebody to step up to Ryan Reeves was because he pulled Ryan Graves' hair in the playoffs, and he's not here either. Basically, Curtis McDermott is here so that whenever Kadri gets pissed off, you give him a stress ball, you sit him on the bench and say, Curtis will take care of it. Maybe that's why New York got him. They said, Ryan Reeves, we need you to take care of Ryan Graves, who is now here in New <laughs> yeah. Jersey. That's that's who Ryan <laughs> Reeves is losing sleep over at night, is Ryan Graves. <laughs> but but I mean, yeah, no, you, you I get the point, but... Uh, I'll tell you one thing to you and to the listeners and to Patrick. If you haven't done this already, go onto YouTube and watch a couple of Curtis McDermott's fights from last year, specifically the one against Nicholas Delorier against the Anaheim Ducks. It is just an absolute smash fest. Like Curtis McDermott was meant to play hockey in the early 2000s. And I love that you brought up Delorier too, because his name specifically stands out to me as throughout the season. If you remember, I'm pretty sure it was Delorier and Kadri that wouldn't stop getting into it. And Delorier was chasing Kadri all over the rink. And Kadri had nothing to do but to skate away and kind of just chirp him as he goes back to the bench. I'm a, I'm a top six guy. Don't bite, don't bite, don't bite. But I know mm-hmm. how Kadri get if the, get, can get. If the screws get loose, he's going to go after Delorier, but now he's going to sit on the bench. They're going to give him a stress ball, and Curtis will take care of it. Right. And Anaheim got in the heads of the avalanche in those couple games too, right? Because they had the back-to-backs and whatnot. So, yeah, McDermott, he's more than just a Ryan Reeves prevention. He's, he's just an overall 
increase in toughness. And if they need to send a message every once in a while, he's there to send that message and no longer falls on Landis God, Calvert, or Graves. Exactly. And, and you know, the whole purpose of this discussion is to say that there is options. Uh, you know, I, I sent you uh, a link to a tweet that I had tweeted out yesterday that a lot of a lot of our listeners probably saw have seen already at this point. But going back to what I was saying about the Avalanche carrying 13 forwards, seven defensemen and two goalies, Jacob McDonald's not your seventh defenseman. Curtis McDermott is. And the reason why that is, is because Jacob needs to play big minutes and he needs to play hockey and he's going to play big minutes with the Eagles and Loveland. Curtis McDermott is the type of dude that you can staple to the bench. Who cares? Or sorry, staple to the press box. Who cares? And whenever you need to play him, play him. But with a roster of Taves McCarr, Gerard Johnson, Byram, Murray, and McDermott, knowing that you still have on top of those seven guys, Dennis Gilbert and Jacob McDonald as NHL capable defensemen, you're good. You're fine. Your depth is fine. Your top six are excellent and your three depth guys are fine. And that's all you can ask for from your depth defenseman. And again, that's not taken into account the potential possibility of Justin Barron maybe getting a sniff of a game or two or three. So he'll get a chance to probably come in there at some point, you know, depending on what happens with his junior season. Yeah, capable bodies that can be reliable, but you don't need to put too much pressure on them. I mean, of course, if you get to a position where you have a lot of expectations for those names, then everything's going to hell anyway. So, um, yeah, capable bodies. That's what I. That's what I think uh, when I hear all those names you just went through. So I like it. Exactly. Uh, the so th- I, I kind of like the cap structure of what the Avalanche have going on here because their top four defensemen make twenty four million dollars. And Eric Johnson makes a quarter of that, which obviously he's one fourth of the top four, but you can argue that it should be less than 24 because of Johnson. But then you have Byram and Murray making $3 million, you know, combined a little less than 3 million. McDermott making 875K. It's a damn good defense. I think it's a really good defense. I think with those with those extra guys, it's really good. And if you get three, four, five injuries deep and you really truly do need more help, then go hit up the trade market. Trade another third, trade another fourth for somebody like Patrick Nemeth. Not literally him, but just another depth guy. Bring somebody in, Troy Stetcher, John Merrill, pick a guy and bring him in and play more minutes. But, you know, if you are three, four, five defensemen down, you know, three, four, five injuries into your defense, then at that point you have bigger issues than, you know, complaining about Curtis McDermott playing 10 minutes. Sure, sure. And for the most part, you have a good idea of what all those guys are capable of, right? Whereas with Timmins last year, and even Byram, you're kind of still, there still waiting questions. on yeah yeah you're still waiting on what they can do, especially with Timmins injuries. You never know how they're going to react and yeah. if he's going to get re-injured. So and that's the funny thing, like right now the way we're talking about Justin Barron is like, hey, he's like the shiny new toy. He might be good, he might be not. That's literally what was the way we were talking about Byram a year ago. But Byram was was much higher up the depth chart than Barron is. Barron's like the eleventh guy on this chart right now after all those guys we just listed. Kind of the same way Shane Bowers gets treated, right? Yeah. I mean, we kind of forget about his existence because he hasn't really been given the shot, but he's still a, a good player that we're waiting to see you know, what he's first capable rounder. of as well. Yes. Yeah. So that being said, obviously still room to make moves at the forward level. So they have roughly about $3 million in cap space. So I guess... What what do you look by? What do you look into that number? What does that mean to you? Do you think that's something that Joe Sakic definitely has to spend? Do you think it's something maybe he hangs on to and waits to see how the beginning of the season unfolds and kind of you know adjusts and pivots from what from there? How do you see that three million dollars getting used, if at all? I think he should use it, and he should use it on a forward. I just don't think it's as easy as. And, you know, I'm going to say this and then they're going to do it in two hours and it's going to make me sound dumb. But I don't think it's as easy as looking at the UFA market, finding the best guy left and signing him. Like with the defense, when I wrote the story about, you know, breaking down the salary cap, when I started with the forwards, I talk about obviously Thomas Tatar. He's at the top of the list. Tatar, you know, if he can sign for maybe two and a half million, that would be great. He would fit right into that top six. And then I talk about more depth guys like Tyler Bozak, Alex Galchenyuk, Ryan Donato, Marcus Johansson. When I got to defense, I mentioned one name, Ryan Murray. He's the obvious choice. He's pretty much the only choice. And then after that, I said other free agent options that I said, Jason Demers, Jordan Ben, Jordy Ben, uh, Eric Goodbranson, just a bunch of guys that I'm listing just to say there is more options, but none of them make sense. Murray's the only ideal choice. 
So on defense, it was really easy to go out there and say, Murray fits. He's the one guy that actually makes sense. Let's sign him. On forward, I think it's more than that. On forward, it's number one, term, cap number, and fit. Fit. That's, fit. You, th- Thomas, that's what I was thinking as you were going off. Of. Fit is huge. Yes. Tomas Tatar fits. Does he, though? Because that's what makes me nervous. Because how many teams has he jumped around on in the last four years and can't find a home? And every team is ready to kind of let him go at, at the drop of a hat. So, yeah, he's a decent player. But, I mean, there, there has to be something else going on for no other team to ever want him to stick around. So he was with Detroit for a while. And then he was traded to Vegas for, get this, a first, a second, and a third. I don't know what Vegas was thinking. They brought him on board. They didn't give him much of a chance. He didn't fit there. They used him as one of the two key pieces to trade to Montreal to get back Pacioretty. So even though Vegas didn't use Tatar, Tatar still had value because people know he's a good player. He went to Montreal, led their team in scoring for one, two, three seasons, had 30 points in 50 games this year, got to the playoffs, and I don't know why they chose not to play him. They couldn't score. They still wouldn't play him. That to me is a Montreal issue more than it is a Tatar issue. With Tatar, you're getting a player who ranks over the last three or four seasons. I think it's four seasons. And I know this is such a specific stat, but it is a very, very uh, noteworthy statistic. At even strength, Tatar is the 22nd highest scoring player in the NHL over the last four seasons. Forward, sorry, not player. Because I, I, I bet you there's at even strength. I bet you there's a defenseman that has more points than him. But over the last three seasons or four seasons, I forget which year it was, he's the 22nd best forward at even strength. And that's important because even strength is, is the hard part of hockey, right? Yeah. And and playing on a line with Kadri and Burakovsky, let's face it, Burakovsky last year didn't have his best season, kind of put it on at the end. And Kadri had that slump for 20-something games where he didn't score. Playing Tatar on that line makes a lot of sense. He fits. I think he fits. But on top of it, it's cap number and it's term. Tatar is coming off a long-term deal that was paying him $5.3 million per season. If he's going to want anything close to that, he's not going to get it. Obviously, the Avalanche have only $3 million. If he wants three years, $9 million total, still, Sackick's going to be like, nope, I got to pay, pay McKinnon in a couple years. I got to basically rework my second line next year because Kadri and Burakovsky are UFAs in, in, in less than 12 months. So... If you're Tatar, the way that it works for me with the Avalanche, if he's not taking a one-year deal, it's a two-year deal at $5 million. A respectable two-and-a-half, which is what Nichushkin makes, a respectable two-and-a-half, which is the deal Nick Ritchie just got with the Maple Leafs, which was the other forward out there that was a potential uh, option for the Avs. Two years, $5 million for Ritchie. Two years, $5 million for Tatar. Can he get more elsewhere? Probably, but why hasn't he signed that deal yet? Mm-hmm. Is he contemplating the potential of, for his sake, as much as the Avalanche's sake, fit? Because he was a fit in Montreal and that for whatever reason, they didn't play him in the playoffs. He was a he was a great fit in Detroit. He played there for so long, but it, it the fit matters to the player as much as it does for the team. Is it as easy as signing Tatar? Maybe, but it's got to be the right money in the right term. If that's not the case, going back to your question, what's Sackett going to do to that $3 million? He's going to hold on to it until he finds something that works. And I'll mention again what I mentioned last episode. Valerie Nichushkin in a regular offseason that starts in June, Nichushkin was signed in the middle of August for league men or 700K, I believe it was. If it takes until the middle of September, two weeks before training camp, for Sackick to find the piece he wants, that's how long it'll take. If it takes until the first or second week of the season, that's how long it'll take. Um, but there, there's options out there. He's going to have to see what he can do. Ricard Raquel is still out there. You're going to laugh when I say it out loud, but Phil Kessel is still out there if you get him you know, at half money. There's options. Here's a, here's a funny thing about Phil Kessel since I, since I mentioned him. His salary cap hit is $6.8 million. So number one, if you acquire him, Arizona has to retain half. But get this, his signing bonus was already paid out. His salary for the upcoming season is $850,000. Jeez. Because, yeah, it's one of those contracts where he gets like a bunch of million in a signing bonus and then 850K. So imagine a trade where you bring in Phil Kessel, half of his money is retained. He counts against your cap as 3.4, 
But Stan Kroenke is only writing him a check for $400,000 to play an entire season and probably score 25 goals. I know he gets a bad rap for being lazy. I love him. But I, I like mean, him. I, I think any human being, if they're getting a tenth of what they're, or I guess a sixth of what they're used to getting, is probably going to maybe, you know, pack it in a little bit. I mean, of course, he might be on yeah. a, a Stanley Cup potential team, but I'd be nervous about his effort levels. Well, he got, you know, it, I mean, no, not necessarily because he got his payday on July 1st. It's the same thing as all these other guys like Ryan O'Reilly gets like a $7 million signing bonus and then his salary is 800 k Like it happens all the time. It's just a unique situation because his signing bonus was paid out last month and he's a pending UFA in a year. So there's no more signing bonuses, no more nothing. All he's got left of this contract that he signed eight years ago is $850,000. It would be the kind of move where you need to get JT Comfer off the team so that the $3.4 million cap hit replaces the $3.5 million cap hit of Comfer. But instead of paying Comfer $4.5 million, you're paying pennies to a guy that can score 25 goals. The one thing that worries me about Phil Kessel, he's not my top choice, and I'll tell you why, is because Andre Burakovsky already struggles playing defense. Could you imagine Nazem Kadri playing with Kessel and Burakovsky? Just like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> Indeed. I mean, Kadri's played with him before. Hell, you can sign Phil Kessel. Uh, you can trade for Phil Kessel. You could sign Tyler Bozak and bring back the Toronto line from their lottery year. Is that really what you want to do? So, I don't know. It just, it's it's a fun it's a fun thing to think about. But I don't know if it's really the best choice. Yeah, I like the Bozak idea too. But he was making a lot of money. I'm not sure they'll be able to see eye to eye on a on a number there. <sighs> and I'm with you. I don't know, man. If 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 nobody's signing Bozak and and Denver is what he calls home, can Sakic say take a million? Well, that's what I was gonna say next. Is I like the idea. If your first option isn't out there, why not wait a little bit? Wait till the season starts and then see what's left out on the market because there's always a couple stragglers who have yet to sign who get a late PTO. Yeah. And then you get them for pennies on the dollar, and boom, you've got yourself a full lineup of, of and you got a veteran guy too. It's a secondary market. It's how it works. There's always one guy that slips through the cracks. Remember Mike Hoffman last year signing mm -hmm. a PTO with the Blues, even though it was like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we got your contract in the drawer kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But there's always one of those. And this year, it looks like Tyler Bozak is one of those. This year, I mean, on defense, all these defensemen got paid. Ryan Murray didn't. Poor guy, because he shoots left. And the Avalanche were like, you know what? We're going to pay you not as much as everybody else, and you're probably going to play on the right side. But again, Jake McCabe and Cody Cece and all these other guys, they got paid big money, even Tyson Berry, because they shoot right. People really, really value right shot defensemen right now, uh, which is why Connor Timmons, the Coyotes, really wanted him because he's a right shot defenseman. So somebody like uh, Tyler Bozak, who's left on the market, uh, Thomas Tatar, the guys that kind of reach or get to the secondary market, which is where we're at now. Everything is quiet. All the friggin' insiders and TSN and Sportsnet are all sitting on their lake house somewhere in Canada. These are the guys that you want to go for. So if if Tatar was going to get, this is what I was saying, if Tatar was going to get three or four million, he probably would have signed that deal by now. At this point, you can probably get him for two and a half and Bozak for a million, million and a half maybe. And then another idea, you know, I think you floated out there, a couple other people floated it out there a few weeks ago, but now it's really starting to gain traction as, as a reality. And that's giving Newhook more of a chance on, on those top lines, right? I mean, that's starting to look like it's something where you can almost count on at this point, which is exciting because we saw a lot of potential in him. I love when teams give a young guy a chance rather than burying him on third, fourth lines and, and low minutes. I think seeing him on the second line would be a viable option for the beginning of the season just to see how he does. I absolutely agree. But here is the part that worries me about that is you have no safety net. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's what Tatar... Okay, so if you bring in Tomas Tatar at two and a half million a new hook takes a step and is your second line winger with Kadri and Burakovsky. Do you remember the very first podcast we did? Cause I do. Uh, the very first podcast we did, the avalanche had just brought in Donskoy and Kadri and Burakovsky. And if you remember the second line was Kadri, Burakovsky and Tyson Jost on the left. And we talked about that and we were not sold on it. It didn't work. Newhook on the left, Newhook is not Tyson Jost. Or let me say it the other way. Tyson Jost is not Newhook. I think Newhook is going to be a far greater offensive threat than, than uh, Tyson Jost ever was. But the Avs had a safety net 
when Jost didn't work and they tried to force it opening night and it wouldn't work, they put Jonas Donskoy on that line and then they had that three new people all on the same line and Donskoy, Berkey, and Kadri and it worked. Bringing in Tatar gives you that safety net because right now, if New Hook doesn't work, who are you putting on that second line? Nichushkin or Comfer? Like, yeah, Nichushkin could be a second liner. That's fine. But then your third line is Jost, Comfer, and New Hook. Or you can put Comfer up there and now your second line. You get the point. Like, you need a safety net and Tatar provides mm-hmm. that. And if it ends up being Tatar playing on your third line with Jost and Nichushkin, whole thrive. Or hell, if it ends up being Phil Kessel and Kessel ends up playing on the third line with Joseph Nichushkin, played on the third line in Pittsburgh with the HBK line, and that worked. So you got to have somebody who can cover in case Newhook's not ready, and we're just not going to know if Newhook's ready until he gets his shot. Absolutely. I mean, I think we've covered everything in the lineup that we wanted to cover this week. I think one more thing I wanted to get to was how about Grubauer's faux pas in Seattle uh, with their <laughs> contract and it getting rejected. Of course, they're going to figure something out. That but just, was hilarious. You know, and then seeing... Yeah, I think, Na- they've already, I think they've already reworked it. Yeah, and then seeing Nathan McKinnon's reaction to it too, where he just did the laughing, crying of laughter emoji, almost, <laughs> you know, shot and freuding him, pointing and laughing like, you idiot. Um, so that's yeah. that's always fun to see. Yeah, that was hilarious. I do want to get to one more thing. Oh. Um, And you probably haven't seen this because it's new. Uh, There is a Russian interview with Nikita Zadorov. I did see this. I love this. Did you see this? I love this. I am going to read this entire thing. Do do it in a Russian accent, please. (laughs) I I can't. I'm going to laugh the whole way through. (laughs) But it is absolutely great. For all the listeners that haven't heard it yet, here is excerpts of... Nikita Zadorov's Russian interview on Nathan McKinnon. He says, I saw the progression in Nate's game. He is such a pro. He has a dietologist that he pays 50 grand a year for. He has a live-in doctor, a physiotherapist in his house during the season who he pays $1,000 a day to. In addition, he rents that person in an apartment. He has his own chef who he pays another 100 grand to a year. He simply invests in himself and his own body so he can play at the highest level. He's crazy that way. He eats right. He doesn't drink. He only drinks water. Two years ago in Colorado, he got rid of all the pop, ice cream, and desserts. He got rid of them from the dressing room and pregame meals. He even got rid of white sauce for pasta. He replaced the actual pasta itself with chickpea pasta because it has more protein. He made pros out of the entire Colorado team. That's one of the reasons that Colorado got such an improvement in performance over the last couple of seasons. And then he would say, guys, if you want to eat that crap, you have the offseason for that. When you come here, there will be none of that because we're here to win the cup. All the young guys see it. They look up to him and they try to do their part. Nate is like MJ. I don't I don't want to make a direct comparison, but his way of thinking is very similar to MJ. He can be a jerk to his teammates and line mates. You need to accept that. And it would improve you as a hockey player as a result. If you can't accept it, well, you're off the team. He is always the hardest working guy. He comes out 30 minutes before practice, constantly working on his hands. Young guys see that he's the best in the NHL and he's still working to improve. It motivates them to work even harder. If you miss a pass in practice, he would skate over and literally scream at you. You can't pass him the puck without hitting his stick. We, we had young players come over during the playoffs and, and you know that says to me, kill McCarr. If the puck ends up in his skates, not even in his skates... Uh, if it misses his stick a tiny bit, like 15 centimeters in front of the blade of his stick, he doesn't move his stick uh, to catch the puck. He stops everything, turns around, slaps the puck back at you. He's not going to try to receive any puck that doesn't uh, that he doesn't like during practice, just to show you that you made a shitty pass. He's a guy that demands that everyone leaves everything out there to maximize their abilities. There are many players that didn't get along with him, so on and so forth, blah, blah, blah. He goes on into basically more of that. Unreal. Yeah, Just, a couple things stand out to me from that. Yes. I'm going to start with the pro- the progress, right? He saw Nathan McKinnon progress, and I think that's something we've all seen, both from a maturity standpoint, but what we haven't seen is that behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, I remember being, I've told this story a million times on podcasts, I was at Milan Hayduk's final game party with the team right after the game the party went out to the bars I just happened to be at that bar that was also Nathan McKinnon's rookie year he was behind he was behind the bar and he may or may not have been taking some alcoholic beverages even though he was below the age of 21 right (laughs) exactly exactly and obviously that's a completely different version of himself I mean it was kind of a looked like he was doing it more to fit in more than he liked it type of thing he was definitely hiding it but they didn't know I saw but here I am. I saw it. 
keep that keep that on the low, guys. Uh, <laughs> but again, it's it's obviously nothing that he takes part in anymore. He's 180 from that mindset rather than following that leadership group, right? Milan Hayduk likes a drink, and he was the leader of that team. If that's what the leaders are doing, then of course he's going to kind of feel like, all right, well, this is what I got to do to fit in. If you're a new guy and this is what your leader is doing and this is what you got to do to fit in, this is why the NHL is what it is today, right? Yeah. It's because of mindsets like this. It's people taking their health seriously. People. 24 hours a day are athletes, not just the three hours a day that they're at the rink. The other thing, obviously, that stood out to me was the part where he says, and if you don't like it, well, you're off the team, right? Mm-hmm. Funny coming from a guy who is A, kind of a dickhead, and B, off the team, right? <laughs> so, But that's that's the funny thing. That's the funny thing. This entire interview is is not Zadorov trashing him. It's Zadorov talking about no. how how fascinated he is and how how much credit he gives mckinnon for growing right and uh, but of course the name that comes to your head when you hear that is matt duchene right and the exactly that that's immediately what you yep. think of and that's kind of what happened to the matt duchene thing so yeah um i think those are all the things that stood out to me when i when i first read that just some things that popped into my head what i like about it i kind of like the comparison to mj about him uh you know being a little bit of a dick to his teammates and and you have to learn to accept it because it comes from a good place and the part that I kind of want to change is where he said he wants to be like MJ. It's Nate wants to be Sid. Nate does everything Sidney Crosby does. There's a reason why he spends as much time with him. They grew up in the same town. He spends his off seasons with him. He trains with him. He does everything Sidney Crosby does. There's nothing more Nathan McKinnon wants to be more than Sid Crosby. And this is just exactly what shows that. The difference between Sid and Nate is by the age of 25, Sid was able to get over a little bit of the the anger that that McKinnon shows sometimes. The screws get loose. You know, a young Sidney Crosby had that happen all the time. A young Nathan McKinnon had that all yeah, the time. Yeah, he used to scream at refs. He was raging at refs. One of my favorite right. things of Sidney Crosby, his rookie season, he was such a pain in the ass. He got under Peter Forsberg's skin in that Philly-Pittsburgh rivalry. Mind you, this is a season where, where Forsberg, and this is me being a nerd, remembering 16 years ago, he played on a line with Simone Gagné and Mike Knubel. And he had not a point per game. He had an assist per game through 40 games. And Simone Gagné had 35 goals halfway through the season playing with, playing with Peter Forsberg. He was on top of the world. He was leading the NHL in everything before, obviously, injuries. And then, obviously, uh, Joe Thornton ended up winning the Art Ross Trophy. But Forsberg was on top of the world on a playoff caliber team, losing his mind over an 18-year-old Sidney Crosby because he was just a pain in the ass. But he grew out of that. Nathan McKinnon's getting there. He's not there entirely. That's the one difference still left to me, in my opinion, between Nathan McKinnon and Sidney Crosby. But that doesn't mean he can't get there. But on the ice, the way he trains, the way he prepares, McKinnon wants to be Sid. Right. And I just love how he wants greatness for his teammates too, right? It's not, I mean, a part of it is coming from a place of selfishness. He's like, if you guys would just do the things I do, then you'll be better. But taking it into his own hands to help them kind of change that and kind of change the whole culture of the avalanche as a whole, I think just tells you how much he truly wants to win and also, at the same time, how much in the back of his mind he thinks, well, if I had 20 Nathan McKinnons on this team, this is the best team yeah. in the NHL, right? Kind of subtly pointing the finger at his teammates, um, you know, for past losses, I say. But again, that's looking too much into yeah. it. I just think he wants everybody to be great and everybody, you know, he wants everybody to feel as good as he does. He says, this works for me. You guys see it working for me. Why don't you, you know, let's all be great together and do this stuff. I, I totally get the mindset as someone who pushes others around him to try to be great. I feel like I, I can relate, obviously not to that level, um, but, you know, I get it. Why, why do anything if you don't want to be the best at it? Yeah, and, and that's Nathan McKinnon's mindset. That's the way he does. That's the way he plays the game. That's the way he operates, the way he trains. And that's why he is the way he is sometimes after games and after losses is because, you know, he's not here to disrespect media. Sometimes he gets disrespected by media. Mm-hmm. But he's here to uh, he's here to win, and 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 that's what he wants to do. But it's it's keeping your cool in certain is able to do that. Really keep that winning pedigree. Then you'll have three Stanley Cups like Sidney Crosby. You'll win two cons mice in a row. You'll score a game winning goal for the Olympics to win a gold medal, which you're going to get an opportunity for hopefully in 2022 and 2026. So 
it's just great to see that. It's great to hear Nikita Zadorov talking great things or saying great things about his former teammate, not trashing him. But right, those could have easily been those easily could have been spun as negative, right? And he he did it the opposite way and said these are what makes him great. He made sure to say that these are all the things that he is, and some of them kind of sound dickish, but he's all these things because he's great, and these are what makes him great. So it was just great yeah. to see that. It's it's awesome to see the gem that we have in Denver. And, uh, you know, it's why this team is still a Stanley Cup contending team. Yeah, they lost Burakov, uh, not Burakovsky, they lost Belmar and Donskoy and Saad and Calver and Graves and Grubauer, but they got Nathan McKinnon. And and that's the point. That's that's full stop and stop right there. I know they got Darcy Kemper and Darren Helm and Ryan Murray, but they got Nathan McKinnon and that's why they're a cup contender. Agreed. I mean, not more can be said about uh, today. Avalanche wise, I feel like we've covered everything. We were planning on going what thirty minutes or so. We're almost to an hour. So. Yeah, we know we know that Arif can't talk for just thirty minutes. Oh, well, we like we, we like to talk as hockey here. You push me to be great. I push you to be great. You've been eating your sweet potatoes. I've been eating my chickpea pasta. All thanks drinking, to you. Drinking nothing but water. Yep, smart water too. Right, all those uh, the ashwagandha, tangerine extracts. Mmm, free ad, free ad. Call no us up, ads, smart no water. Free ads. Um, that'll do it um, for this week's episode of Hockey Mountain High your go-to Avalanche podcast be sure to hit us up on Twitter at RunRightArrow for any Avalanche running exercise questions you may have out there hit me up running and writing talk to me goalies I love talk goalies any real estate questions buying or selling hit me up I'm available you know that's the truth and uh, yeah other than that I guess that's all we have anything you want to get off your chest before we wrap it up the way we always do that's pretty much it. We'll uh, try to touch base sometime next week if there's something to talk about. Hopefully there is. Um, otherwise, we'll start to preview what this Avalanche roster is looking like. Yeah, I mean, it's right around the corner, right? It's it's uh, it's just August 1st, but shoot, it's only about six weeks away. So, Yeah, it's the fact that it's already August and free agency was six days ago is the part that's crazy to me. Yeah. There's usually a slow down month after July and... We're already there. Not here. Not this year. Six more podcasts and we'll be at training camp and uh, hopefully talking to players. We'll see how that goes. But yeah, obviously, if you made it this far in the podcast, bless your heart. If you're listening during the off season, extra bless your heart. We love the records we're breaking with this podcast and it's all because of the listeners. So first and foremost, thanks to you. Secondly, thanks to Patrick Sedman for making us sound so good. And he's clearly our good luck charm, right? Ever since he hopped on board. Our numbers have just been rising and rising and rising. They've been skyrocketing. It took us two years to get over that hump, but the numbers are going way up. So shout out to the listener. Shout out to Patrick for making us sound good. We're we're excited for this upcoming season. Yep. So uh, on that note, hockey's for everyone, and we out to you.